Hello, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. You can listen and subscribe to the show for free on Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. For network or show information, visit BikeRadio.me. And now, the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Good day, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Today, my special guest is Becky Bowen, and we'll be talking about her new novel, A Light on Altered Land. Ellie Beaumont, a retired college teacher, wants to leave the house she shared with her wife, who died three years ago. Catherine Kepler, a retired psychotherapist, finds life as a country club divorcee lonely. They meet by chance at a coffee shop and bond over downsizing. Sparks of attraction ignite on a road trip from Minnesota to California. After a romantic few days in Yosemite, they must deal with the real world. Catherine's homophobic daughter, medical cannabis, and a run-in with the law. It's a love story about mature passion and personal integrity. Becky Bowen earned her MA in English Literature from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She is the retired vice president of a training consulting company, and she has published three lesbian novels, and along with her wife, Nancy Manahan, co-authored the nonfiction award-winning Live Consciously, Die Dying Gracefully, A Journey with Cancer and Beyond. For more information, you can visit their website, which is nanbeck.com, and that's simply N-A-N-B-E-C.com. And with that, I'd like to welcome Becky to the show. Good day, Becky. Hello, Robert. How are you today? I'm doing wonderful, thank you, and, and I am looking forward to talking to you today about your new novel. Um, I, I guess uh, the first thing I, I want to start with is, you know, since my show is about inspiration, I usually like to kind of find out from the guests, you know, what inspired them to, in this case, write the book. So would you mind giving, giving us a little bit of um, kind of how the idea came about? Sure. Actually, this idea, the seed of it, was planted um, back in 2016 when I saw the movie Carol, starring Kate Blanchett and Mari Runa, or Runa Mari. And it's about a, um, it takes place in 1951 and 1952. Uh, a woman played by Kate is a uh, kind of bored, upper crust housewife, and she meets a store clerk who's kind of a young bohemian, and the two of them embark on a love affair, and they travel west, um, and at that time, of course, on their road trip, uh, they're at the start, the, the sparks really fly, but in that era, um, love between two women is not legal, and 
so there are complications, of course. Anyway, the, the book ends rather abruptly in the movie, and I wanted to know what happened. So I, I went to the source, The Price of Salt, which um, came out at that time. Patricia Highsmith was the, the author of that. And I read the book, and the book ended the same way. Just It just kind of cut off. We don't really know what happens to these characters. Uh, so, so that was the scene. Now, um, can you tell us a little bit about the, the title, A Light on Altered Land? What, what, what is the significance of that? Do I have you there? Hello? Oh, looks like I lost Becky here. Um, hold on, folks, let me, oh, there we go. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I can, I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, we have. <laughs> okay, so, um, anyway, the, uh, I, I wrote this novella taking the, the story beyond what was in the movie and the book, but I could not get it published, of course, because of, of copyright issues even though Patricia Heisman has been gone now for a couple of decades. So it was one of those instances where what seems like a setback really opens new opportunities. And I was on a road trip with Matthew, um, and I had my wife uh, the following year uh, in 2017, and we drove from Minnesota to California. And there we learned about a substance called Rick Simpson oil. It's a high-potency chemical product that we thought that that might give some relief to uh, some of the health issues that Nancy had. So we drove back to Minnesota with a little cash in our trunk. As we were driving east across Wyoming, it just kind of struck me, you know, we're kind of like, um, Carolyn Tourette's, you know, fleeing across the American map. <laughs> and what kind of outlaws. And then I just took it a step further and thought, this is the start of a, another book. I can write this story and it will be about older women in their 60s based loosely on Nancy and me and uh, some of the, the, um, people who have come into our lives who have been, been blessed. And so I just took it from there. And I knew that by focusing on women in their 60s, it would be a story that would, that would appeal to, of course, people who are older. It would give me an opportunity to deal with some of the issues that we face at this the time in our lives we're facing loss, we're facing big changes. The two characters in the book, for example, are looking at downsizing, and they've both had big changes in their lives at big losses. Ellie, the uh, college, retired college teacher, has lost her wife um, to breast cancer, and Catherine has lost her husband to a younger woman. And so those are big changes, and uh, so that's kind of where, where the, the inspiration came from, just uh, 
knowing that there was a lot of potential to mind, um, just because I would, was dealing with older people and they had the wisdom of their years. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's, uh, do, do you know of um, what the field is like with books, you know, that deal with lesbian relationships? And the aging aspect, I mean, that's, that's, um, I would think a very unique niche, um, to write about. Well, there have been some, uh, nonfiction books for change, um, for example, uh, and some novels have, um, dealt with it, uh, Jane Rule, uh, her book Memory Board deals with a, an old lesbian couple, one of them who is is suffering memory loss. Um, mm-hmm. But there really aren't that many that deal with romance. Um, I, and I couldn't, when, when I first started writing this book, I couldn't really think of any where the protagonists come together in their 60s and, and really have a, a, a strong romantic in deep relationship. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, it, it's one of those cases where, I mean, your, the book um, touches on so many real-life, very common challenges that people go through, you know, particularly, you know, when you're, you know, dealing in with mature you know, characters. Um, so, you know, yeah, one, one of the Let's just talk about um, the ageism aspect. You know, now obviously you and Nancy, you know, kind of fit the character. Like you said, it's loosely you know, based on you and Nancy. Um, so, what were what been some of the first? Why did you want to deal with ageism, and what are some of the Aspects that you really feel are important for, like, for the listener to maybe become aware of. Well, I wanted to deal with with ageism because it is something that, if we are lucky enough to grow old enough, we will all face it. And you know, I just wanted to put it out there and, and show some examples of um, of what people our age run into. For example, one thing that Nancy and I run into so frequently is, and I illustrated this in the book, is we'll go out to a restaurant or, um, you know, uh, a store or something, and someone will come up and call us young ladies. What can I get you young ladies? And, you know, as it's handled in, a, in the book, you know, Ellie says, you know, I, I know you're you're, you mean well, but really this is insulting. We are not young, and to pretend otherwise is disrespecting our age. It's disrespecting the years that we've lived on this earth and the experiences we've had. We are mature women, and we would like to have that recognized. Um, yeah. You know, I can understand that now. What would what would be an appropriate this lady 
or what, what would be that you feel is appropriate? Not the cure, maybe. You know, someone would say, you know, what can I get you, ma'am? Or what can I get you, women? Uh, or even, you know, what can I get you, ladies? You know, that's, you know, of course, that has some connotations of class to it, but, you know, just uh, women would be fine. Or okay. I'm sorry. I like to, you know, educate myself as, as well as the listeners. You know, these very common interactions, and to to do it in a way that's, you know, uplifting and supportive. You know, um, mm-hmm. it's like sometimes we don't even realize what we're saying. Exactly. You know, there's another instance in the book that that illustrates this. Catherine is talking to her friend Judith, and, and she's saying, you know, I'm, you know I'm, I'm, I found this woman. You know, she's never been in a relationship with a woman, so this is all brand new to her. She's, she doesn't really know if this is something she should pursue. And the friend suggests that, well, you know, she should go for it, that at her age, her prospects for love are not very good. And Catherine mm. reframes it as, as that she's been lucky enough to live long enough to explore new territories. And mm. so that puts things on, on its head, that the opportunities for, for love are there no matter what age. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, you know, that is important, you know, to, to put, you know, because so many people are living longer. And we're, you know, running across, you know, the, um, the cases where the, oh, the mature individual, you know, um, doesn't, uh, the, the desire for companionship doesn't, you know, diminish, you know, once, once you're older or, or when you've lost um, a partner, um, or, you know, a spouse. Um, so, I think that it's um, really important to, to uh, keep that, keep the love alive, you know, as, as far as uh, potentiality. Exactly. And also to keep friendships alive, too. You know, we're at the age, Nancy and I, where we are starting to lose friends and mm-hmm. our peer group. And it's important to treasure the friends that you have and uh, the relationships that you've built up over the years and also to try and cultivate new ones and, you know, just be open to new people. It's, it's more of a challenge, of course, when you're older because you come with a lot of years that you've lived and a lot of experiences and, you know, it's trying to, um, blend them in with someone else, but it's uh, a matter of, um, I don't know, finding the right chemistry and and keeping the communication open as wide as possible. Yeah. Um, now, speaking of communication, you know, the, the two main characters have a, an open, you know, and, and honest communication is what's displayed between them. So, um, tell us why, 
you know, why did you portray it that way? And um, is, is there what what are the uh, what, what's the factors that contribute to that honest open communication? Well, that's a good question, Robert. I would say right offhand that I wanted to portray these characters as being open and honest because I am so tired of reading about characters and seeing them on TV where the basis basis of the humor or even of just the, the communication is dishonesty. So much of the humor in these sitcoms is based on people lying to each other or withholding. And, you know, really that's not funny because it's dishonest. And, you know, anything that you watch on TV, you know, it always seems as though people are being dishonest with each other. And characters in books are withholding. And I just wanted to portray people who are really positive role models that they can show communicating with integrity. And um, I've, I've spent a, a lifetime, of course, learning to communicate in my my wife, Nancy, is an excellent communicator, and so much of, you know, it's interesting. People say, oh, I can really see your relationship in this book. And I think it's true because we do communicate well, and if something is bothering us, we bring it up and we deal with it. And I think part of that has got to be um, having a high emotional intelligence that you're able to realize when you're feeling crabby, to step back and say, why am I crabby? And you can deal with that internally, and then you can also share it and say, this is bothering me. I'm I'm reacting to such and such. And then, you know, Nancy is just a champion that has helping me process you know, what's going on. Both of us, um, and Nancy in particular, have been involved in um something called nonviolent communication. And it's a, a process developed by Marshall Rosenberg. And it the premise of it is that communication is about connection. And that's and in order to understand in order to connect you need to understand the feelings and the needs both of yourself and of the other person. I think that I illustrate that in the book right from the get-go in the opening scene where Ellie and Catherine meet at a coffee shop and they talk about downsizing and it, it leads to a further discussion of, of Ellie's loss of her wife, her partner of 23 years. And Catherine disclosing that her husband left her a year ago and, he, and she's now divorced. And that openness leads to something deeper. It's a deeper connection than if they would have just blown things off and, oh, you know, I'm, I'm downsizing because the house is just too large and I'm just sick of taking care of it. Oh, no. Catherine admits she's lonely. The house is too big. And 
it's that type of disclosure and honesty, being in tune with what's happening inside and being willing to share it with another that leads to connection. Yeah. Yeah. And in that scene, I mean, with, you know, it's, it's interesting because you really jump right into the, um, all of the stuff, all of the stuff that's going on that's kind of, um, affecting each woman's life. Um, and the fact that they talk about it is basically talking to a stranger, you know, in essence, you know, feeling like an intimate part of one's life. So, and I, you know, a lot of people just don't do that, you know, show that kind of vulnerability, you know, especially in the first meet. That's, that's true. One of the things that they have going for them, of course, is that Catherine is a psychotherapist in her career, so she is interested or has the, the tools to go deep with people um, very closely. Um, yeah. Yeah, they, they, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful theme, by the way, that you... You know, that, that initial meeting, um, and it, you know, everybody, I'm sure everybody's been at a Starbucks, <laughs> you know, and has kind of seen, you know, individuals that, that you described. Um, so now we talked a little bit about the ageism aspect. Now also feminism is, is a part of, of the book. So tell us, you know, what you wanted to convey with regard to that ism, the feminism aspect. Okay. Well, I wanted to show someone who has a radical feminist background, and that, of course, would be Ellie. She has been a lesbian her whole life. She's been involved in feminist politics. And... She is able to point out to Catherine some of the things that, even though Catherine herself has considered herself a feminist, has kind of glossed over. They walk into a department store, and, and Ellie exclaims, you know, that so much of this commercialism is aimed at trying to make women feel inadequate and selling them products that will make them look younger. I mean, so it's kind of a, a two-edged sword on that. It's both sexism and ageism that, you know, we need to look like younger women <laughs> and to be effective. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that's something that is not true. I think older women are attractive, and the lines that we have on our face are character lines. <laughs> um, another thing that is very crucial to the book is is Ellie's sense of being what she calls dinosaur. She is from the second wave of feminism back in the 60s and 70s and when things were just so exciting for women we were breaking out from under the this cloak that was over women in the, the 50s you know we were clamoring for uh, career opportunities and sports and all sorts of things. You know, we we, we wanted to 
uh, move out into the world in mass and bring our sisters up with us. And Ellie is dealing with now suddenly, you know, as, as hard as she has fought to claim the word lesbian, for example, and to make uh, herself and others feel comfortable with the thought of women loving women. Now things are moving into a, a whole new realm. There is this alphabet soup of GLBTQ plus plus plus. And, and she, she's not sure how to deal with this because it's, you know, she comes from uh, um, a background of, um, women's music festivals and, and so forth. And and the younger generation, they despise the word lesbian. They don't use that. It's, you know, queer or non-binary or something like that. And so she's just wondering, how does she fit into this world? Or does she? Is she just a dinosaur? And that's um, a big part of the book toward the end where she's coming to deal with that. And... She, of course, um, talks this through with Catherine, and Catherine points out, you know, dinosaurs still live. They are birds. <laughs> they, they are big, beautiful birds and small little birds, and they're all over, and so things change, and every generation has its own way of dealing with the world. And this generation that really saying, you know, lesbians aren't that important, that too will change. They will, this new generation will be giving birth to something new. We don't know what it is, but it could be to something even better than what Ellie had when she went through the second wave. So I wanted to instill a sense of hope to my, uh, my fellow lesbians of a certain age that that things do change and even this will get through this. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, um, you write about uh, um, the younger generation and self-identification, you know, you know whether the um, do that man bond. Uh, I struggle to keep up with it, and it's uh, and it's to me. I I want to be able to for myself be able to communicate um, without judgment and honestly, and you know as um, positive as I can be. So I'm, I'm I always try to be conscious of pronouns. Um, of trying to understand, you know, how the person I'm talking with identifies. Um, but it, it can be a lot to grasp. I think, you know, right now, America and the, you know, the world, but America, you can kind of see it, um, you know, in front of us a lot, um, that is struggling with, um, having common terms or knowledge base that will allow us to talk to each other respectful 
Um, and, and it seems like in a lot of times, you know, uh, that kind of discussion can go awry when, when you're not aware of someone's self-identification. Right. And there again, it's just a matter or just, it is a matter of, of trying to communicate what one's needs are and, and feelings and, you know, trying to come to some happy, hopefully, resolution. And it is tricky, Robert. I, I agree. And things just seem to be changing. Uh, it seems like the, the, the letters change as quickly as, as the technology. <laughs> it's, it's, uh -huh. it's, a new, it's a new world for all of us. And, you know, yeah. Well, we, we, yeah, we who have, uh, you know, for, for decades now been using um, the, uh, the pronoun and, and verb tenses that are supposed to um, fit together. I mean, even there, that's a, that's a challenge if someone likes to be called they, um, you know, do you use a singular or the plural verb? It's not ingrained in us. It's not natural. Whereas I think for younger kids, um, you know, they're, they're much more adept at the fluidity. And, yeah. and it's, it, it, it's, it's more of a challenge for people of, uh, of mature years. Yeah, well, you know, we've, we've grown up, you know, in a world where that, right. the language for that just didn't exist or, you know, just not widely known. Um, but, uh, yeah, it is, to me, it's, um, you know, I think it's important to, you know, keep track, to, to recognize, you know, each person's um, frame of reference as much as possible. And, you know, and, and, you know, the, I think the, the ultimate positive aspect of this is that, uh, the younger generation and the older generation can, or the third generation can really learn a lot by talking with each other, you know, rather than, you know, just trying to ignore or, or minimize you know, their experience. Yes, that's true. Well, uh, Nancy and I belong to a, a group of uh, younger generation lesbians. We, it's a, let's say, I think it's a, a weekly or bi-weekly um, Zoom call, and so we can just hear the issues of, of the younger generation and they can hear the issues of, mm -hmm. of the older generation. And so it's kind of a nice way to um, uh, see the see the different worlds. Yeah, very much. Well, we're, we're about halfway through the show, Nancy, so I'm going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, um, you did mention the, the cannabis oil, <laughs> but I want to talk a, a little bit more about that, okay, when we come back. Okay. Sounds great. Okay. Okay, I'm going to take a we'll be right back after this brief break. Hello, this is Robert Sharp, 
I want to thank you for joining us, and I hope that you are enjoying today's show. Just a reminder that we have a wealth of information and resources available on our website, byteradio.me. There is a calendar of upcoming shows, along with an archive link that will give you access to more than 1,600 shows that we have had during the past 12 years. Also on the site is a link to the products and services we provide, books, nature photography, calendars, and 5x7 photo greeting cards. Our show is a free podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iHeart Radio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and TuneIn. And you can subscribe for free on any of those platforms by using the links on our website homepage. We are on social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, etc. And we also have buttons to those platforms on the top of our homepage. Our website, ByteRadio.me, has much for you to explore and enjoy. I also very much appreciate you supporting our guests, and especially today's guest. And now, back to the show. Okay, everyone. Thank you for staying with us again today. My special guest is Becky Bowen, and we are talking about her new novel, A Light on Altered Land. And again, if we find out more about um, all that Becky and her wife uh, Nancy have to offer by visiting the website, which is nanbeck.com, and that's N-A-N-B-E-C.com. Okay, with that, we're back, Becky. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, yes. Good. Well, you know, one of the things after doing this show for 12 years, I'm amazed. Uh, well, not no amazed, but I was initially amazed at how some show topics kind of pops up a lot in the you know in the relative and then every you know the guests usually selects the date and that kind of thing. But it's just interesting. And and your book um, touches on medicinal cannabis, and I just had uh, a show with a photographer from Belize, and she wrote a book, Cannabis for Creatives, <laughs> and then next, next, week, uh, next month I have a, a show called High, Conventions of a Cannabis Addict. <laughs> so, um, well, I know, it seems like, I know, so anyway, I mean, one of them is I work with the of, 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 of cannabis use, and the other one. I received uh, supportive of not having addiction to cannabis. So, um, how, you know, how, how did the medical cannabis, I mean, you mentioned briefly about um, managing pain, but can you tell us a little bit about um, about your experience and why you felt it was important to include that in the, in the novel? Well, cannabis is certainly uh, – a significant plot point in here because it is um, the reason for the road trip um, to California and the reason that on the way back the, our two characters get into some legal trouble. I wanted to show um, how a particular type of cannabis product, and it's called RSO, Rick Simpson Oil, has been very helpful to a lot of people. It's a product that is 
full spectrum, high potency. And back when I was first writing this book, it really was not available any place other than uh, uh, you'd have to make it at, in your own home or uh, it'd have to be kind of an underground thing. Um, that is no longer true. There are some places now if people Google um, RSO, Rick Simpson Oil, they can get it at some outlets, I think in Oregon and in uh, Colorado. Anyway, this high-potency product, um, some people have found that it relieves pain if they have cancer. Uh, it's the person who created it, Rick Simpson, used it on some melanoma that he had, and it, it was uh, a cure for him, and he became a big advocate of it, and of course got into a lot of trouble uh, because it was not legal, and anyway, he has some interesting um, YouTube videos on, on the internet if people want to take a look at those, but I also wanted to show a little bit about how uh, a cannabis farm and its production facility work. The, the niece and her husband in the book of, uh, of Ellie's niece is, uh, in, is involved in cannabis production. They, they grow it and then they produce it. And at this point it was just becoming uh, legal in California to to distribute it in special centers, and of course, for the purposes of the book, they have a little side business where they make RSO, and it's a very elaborate process, and it takes a lot of the cannabis and a certain type of indigo type, and I just wanted to show a little bit about what that is and have these characters also point out how crazy this patchwork of laws are. They, it can be legal in one state and you drive through another and it's not legal and it really doesn't make sense for a, an, an herbal product that so many people find beneficial to be illegal. And I just wanted to have that be a, a important part of the book and explain that. Well, you know, and, and the medicinal aspects, you know, that's what I think so many more states, you know, have approved the medicinal aspect. Um, you know, yeah. the, the fact that it's, uh, that, that testing and research is limited because of its standing as far as a federal uh, controlled substance, um, or not controlled, I'm not sure exactly what that was going but the fact that research can't be done because it's just um, not one of those um, substances that that, uh, that the government you know, can support. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it is crazy. Yeah, so, and, and I, I'm in South Carolina, so the only way we're going to get it here is to, to come to a national 
you know, kind of like gay marriage, you know, with every same national man, okay, we can do it. But, um, but we'll be kind of behind the, I don't know, I have a line with that one. So now, uh, yeah, in your book too, um, you also talk about um, a, heal, a healing modality that uh, I've talked about with other people on the show, but it's, and it's called EFT, and it stands for Emotional Freedom Technique. So tell us about um, its placement in, in your novel, you know, why it's there, and, and what do you hope the readers can maybe learn about from what you've written? I put it in the novel to uh, illustrate a modality that people can use when they've gone through a traumatic event. It's something that Nancy and I have used and continue to use when we deal with something that has upset us or something that, that triggers uh, anger or shame or, or whatever. And in the book, uh, the two characters are... Uh, caught with with the cannabis product and it is a traumatic experience for them. Catherine is I think operating on, on a higher spiritual level than Elias. Ellie is the one who really has trouble and she's tempted to lie about what's going on but but is able to hold off doing that and and the this whole accident that they witness where someone was killed is is something that just gives her a panic attack and Catherine comes to her with a technique that she has used with some of her clients to help them through trauma and they she shows Ellie how to do the tapping ritual and um, is able to to them, that power of of repeating and telling the story of what happened and tapping on the various uh, acupressure points that that uh, she's able to process that internally and dissipate the, that trauma and so it can lead to, to healing. And she also uses that Ellie also uses it later on in the book to help with uh, another emotional issue that she's going through. I think that this technique is extremely helpful to people, and they can do it on their own. They don't need to have a therapist sitting with them. There are all sorts of uh, examples on YouTube showing how to do this process. And in fact, I just got an email that now there's a, an app that, that uh, is out there that Nick Ordner is a major proponent and teacher of EFT, and, and there's a, a free app that people can download that can help them. And it's a wonderful way to deal with the issue internally so you don't take it out and dump it on someone else, that your anger or your uh, frustration, whatever it is, you can work through that. You can heal yourself and and uh, 
not bring that into the larger, not bring the problem into the larger world. Yeah, yeah, very much. And you know, it is empowering. You know, like you say, you know, if you do it, it is a private seat of your own room. Uh, that, uh, and, and it's very much a self-help aspect. And, yeah, and I, I'm, I'm glad that you included it in your book. Um, because I think, you know, it is a very quick, easy, um, kind of activity that one can do in, in stressful times. Um, so it's something that, that yeah. you use, Robert? I have. I don't regularly, but, but I have. And every now and then, you know, <laughs> I give myself a tap or two. Um, but, um, yeah, but it's, it's, it's not one that I employ frequently. Um, you know, I, um, but anyway, but, I, you know, I'm, I'm aware of it, know how it works. I've done it, and, and we'll probably do it. Um, so that's why I wanted to bring it up, because I, I know how well it works, you know, and, and I'm the kind of person to do that. If it's something that I can do for myself, then I'm more apt to make it a practice. And I, I certainly hope that readers of my book will be interested enough in this technique when they see it works in the book that, that they mm-hmm. would investigate that further. Exactly. That's, and that's the key. You know, some techniques work better for certain people. I mean, we're all unique individuals, and, and we all respond differently to different types of um, energetic, um, you know, work that we, that we can do. So that it's... You know, that's why I think it's really good for someone who does energy work to have, uh, you know, a good number of tools in their tool chest, you know, to draw from because um, I'm sure each client, you know, would react differently. So. Yes, you know, that's true. Um, there are all sorts of modalities out there, and it's a matter of finding one that really works for you. And, and, and you know, when you say we're all individuals, that is so true. And it's it's a matter of of uh, going going down the list and finding what is okay. most exactly. exactly. So now one other aspect of the of the book deals with the idea of family directed after death care, um, and with what uh, we have gone through the last couple of years in pandemic. Um, after death care, I think, um, has just become, the needs have become so apparent. So can you give us your perspective of, you know, what should be happening in, in the case of, um, you know, the individuals who remain and, you know, what, for their care after the death of a loved one? Well, Nancy and I, had a close-up view of this with our sister-in-law, Diane Manahan, who died at the age of 16 of metastatic breast cancer. And she was a nurse uh, psychotherapist, which is kind of what Catherine is in the book. And, uh, and I should say Diane was a big inspiration for this book, too. Anyway, she when she realized that her um, diagnosis 
was terminal. She began planning for her end-of-life care and what would happen, uh, who, who would take care of her body. She wanted to be taken care of at home and to have her intimate friends and family members wash her body to have a home vigil where people would come and um, pay their last respects, if you will, and then have her body escorted to the crematorium and then later have a life memorial service. It would be a life celebration, actually. And she had planned out her life celebration um, to the last detail, including, you know, releasing doves that would participate and what songs would be sung. And it was, it was an amazing process to watch and experience. And out of that, Nancy and I wrote a book called Living Consciously Dying Gracefully, A Journey with Cancer and Beyond, where we talk about Anne's journey and our journey with her at the end and beyond, you know, taking care of, of her body. Well, this book was published in 2007, and shortly thereafter, the Minnesota State Legislature passed a law where it forbade uh, at-home care of bodies. So hmm. Nancy and I, with two other women, formed an organization called the Minnesota Threshold Network, and we lobbied for a change to that law so that um, people could take care of their loved one at home, and it passed where people uh, can keep their loved one up to 72 hours as long as there is some sort of cooling mechanism. It can be uh, as simple as ice. Um, and that's changed frequently, or of course in Minnesota, you can have uh, a body out on a, a porch uh, if it's not a summer day. And then, then the uh, whole process of what happens to that body that led us into the subject of green burials and what is the kindest way to dispose of bodies for the earth. And, of course, a, a, a direct burial is the best. It, it doesn't use any resources, coffins, uh, and uh, traditional cemeteries with, with uh, the cement enclosure. It, it, it uses just an incredible amount of energy and resources. So, you know, that's another aspect of, of the of the Minnesota Threshold Network and other organizations like this that, that deal with green burials and uh, after-death care. Yeah. It's, you know, it's one of those areas that, you know, not talked about as, as often as it should, you know, because um, for something that is inevitable, <laughs> you know, we, you know, we can count on it's going to happen sometime. Um, it's just one of those areas that a lot of times we don't talk about it. And, you know, and I've been through, I've been through cases where individuals have not given, um, 
any indication as to what their desires were to someone who had it like you're kind of scripted, you know, didn't have the dough, but did have the, you know, the, the video, you know, did approve the video, <laughs> that would be shown. And, uh, yeah, and so, you know, but that, you know, that was an extreme. You know, that's probably, that was the most, one that I've ever encountered, you know, some of those explicit plans. But, you know, when she passed on uh, a couple of years ago, it was it made handling the affairs so much easier, um, you know, because it, it, you, we knew what she wanted, and we knew who to go to get that done. And, um, and I, I just think that it's, it's, a, it's a real courtesy that one can do for, for the ones that remain. There are um, various forms available that are out there that uh, lead people through a process about what they want done at the end of their life and, you know, how much uh, medication, when, when would hospice be appropriate. Uh, and and um, it's an advanced care directive. And... Yeah. It's nice people take it beyond that, so it's after death care to um, how do they want their body treated, how do they want it disposed right. of, and it's just you know it is so helpful to family members to have that sort of guidance, and people will then know that this is what the individual wanted, whereas you know if that information is not there, it can lead to squabbles within the family because people have different ideas of what, the, what their beloved would really want. So it's, it's, yeah. it's a good idea. I agree, I agree. Now we're down toward the end of the show, but I can't end it without talking about Star Trek. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Star Trek. <laughs> And I think the first time I showed up was uh, a ringtone of that kind uh, of set. So tell us about, you know, I mean, obviously you you hit a huge base of folks when you start talking Star Trek. So tell us why you wanted to put that in there. Well, I love Star Trek, and this is a, a tribute to it at I call them Easter eggs where there are little things in there that if um, people are familiar with Star Trek, they don't get the references. And it's a way of paying homage to to this great series, um, especially the early ones that dealt with, with uh, ethical situations. And I love the, the positivity that and of uh, the hope for the future that uh, – that the TV shows have. Um, I know that some of these later versions, uh, a lot of it is just, you know, dealing with maybe they become more like Star Wars where there are just one, it's one battle after another. But, you know, like the, the next generation and and, and uh, the one with Catherine Janeway, uh, Voyager, it's, uh, they're missions of discovery and I love that concept where people are wanting to learn about other civilizations. They're trying to make connections with them. You know, that's you know part of the theme of of a light on Earth planet. It's making connections, and so it just seems as though Star Trek is a, an appropriate 
cultural reference. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll disclose a couple of the Easter eggs. You know, the daughter's names, uh, the, the, the granddaughters of, of uh, Catherine, uh, Argina and uh, Maddie or Magell and Gina. It's, that comes from the Roddenberry's Gina and, and Magell. Roddenberry. And so I, so the, the character has, has named her two daughters after the Roddenberry's. <laughs> See, I wouldn't have got that. <laughs> Even though it looks like I wouldn't have got it. But I appreciate you sharing that with us. My goodness. Well, uh, I really enjoyed our chat back in. Now we're, we're connected on Facebook now, so I look forward to following you there. Um, and if anybody wants to get in contact with you, would it, would it be best through your website, um, nan.com? Yes, nan.com. Right, yeah, so and much. on that page. Yeah, it was great. I really enjoyed doing it. And just to let people know, on your uh, nanbeck.com, you can find out your um, Nancy's books, your books, the joint books, and, and videos as well. So there's a lot of people can explore there. So, yes, and some people. Uh, want, I'm sorry? Oh, and, and there are some videos on there, too. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you, Becky, for your time. I've enjoyed our chat, and I look forward to keeping in touch. Okay. Thank you so much, Robert. Take care. You're very welcome. Again, everyone, today my special guest has been Becky Bowen. We've been talking about her new novel, A Light Unaltered Land. And again, as we said, you can find out more about this book and the other books that she and her wife Nancy have to offer by visiting the website nanbeck.com, N-A-N-B-E-C.com. And everyone, I want to thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Her Show. And until we meet again, thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth Show. Remember, our show is available as a free podcast from Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, Blog Talk Radio, Amazon Music, and Audible. To follow our show on any of those platforms, visit ByteRadio.me and select the one you use most. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ByteRadioMe. Until we meet again, remember to be a bright light by bringing inspiration to your world and to the lives of those you touch.